from Sky News on the right to the ABC on the left. The Iron Curtain has descended across the continent. On the right of that line lies an evil empire of conservative Christians who deny climate change but believe in trickle-down economics. On the left lies a misguided and confused rabble who are supposed to help the working man but instead fight amongst themselves over identities. Only the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast takes the uncomfortable position of sitting astride the Iron Curtain to take aim at both sides. Only this podcast, and perhaps the bullshit filter, can explain the dire threats facing our civilization. I only wish that they could have traveled back in time to when I was conducting the war effort. With the benefit of their wise counsel, the war would have ended three years earlier. I would not have lost the election, and I would have invested heavily in technology stocks. <laughs> in any event, I implore you to listen to this very fine podcast. It is your duty. Uh, welcome back, dear listener. The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast is just a small, intimate affair on this occasion. Just myself and Joe. Joe, how are you? I'm good, and you? I'm well, thanks. So, dear listener, we're recording this on a Monday night because I've got family commitments over the next couple of nights, and then I'm away up in Cairns for 10 days. So, Joe and I are recording a podcast, which will probably be split into two segments. And so the half that you hear next week, if something astounding happens in the world and we don't mention it, it's because we pre-recorded it about a week earlier. So yeah. So bear with us as Joe and I settle into our chairs and attempt to podcast for up to three hours. (laughs) I'm I'm missing the chat already. Yes. It is. Yeah. It would be good to have the chat. We'll old school podcasting without without a chat. See how we go. So I'm a little bit worried, dear listener, because I fear this episode could turn into a rant where I just bemoan everything going on in the world. Could be a little bit negative, but we'll try and intersperse it with some positive things if we can. But it's just it can't always be happy times, can it? There we go. I've got some notes here. What's going on? I wrote as a headline. Uh, my notes, and the answer is not much, yet a lot, or everything. The Morrison government was such a shit show that we became obsessed about his government, which I think was a cross between a train wreck and a clown car, it seems to me. just had tragedy and comedy and patheticness all rolled into one. And he's only gotten better (laughs) since he's got out of office. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, he's been... He was at Margaret Court's He was. Church. Yes. Telling everyone not to trust the government. Yes, that he was Prime Minister of and is still a, a member, member of, of Parliament. Parliament of. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll get on to that. People were – I've been saying for ages that when he stands at a lectern, he is channelling the preachers that he's admired in Hillsong and evangelical churches. Like he, to mm-hmm. me, was always channelling a preacher – and who's going to want to employ this guy? There's no self-respecting top Australian company that's going to want Scott Rugby Morrison Australia, on the board. Rugby Australia, apparently. Did they put him on? No. 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 And he wanted to get in the NRL and other stuff. Like, surely they won't touch him with a barge pole. You'd his role, not. his post-politics career will be trying to be some sort of evangelical preacher, I reckon. That's what he's Well, either for. that or on The Voice. <laughs> On the voice, yeah, I'm one of the one of the shit posting Facebook oh. things I follow has said basically that every winner of the voice of the last however many years has been a member of Hillsong. Of course, yeah, he'll get lots of votes from them. Yeah, goes on. Yeah, they'll rally the troops and yeah, dodge up the uh, the voting system. That's a chance. But yeah, we've been obsessed with the Morrison government over the last twelve months. Oh, I have been anyway. 
And rightly so, it was terrible. It's time now, dear listener, to look at the bigger picture. How is the world going? How is our society? Where is our civilization in its life cycle? That's why this episode's going to be depressing. The answer is not good. Climate change, we've got overheated share and property markets propped up by dysfunctional debt, rising interest rates on that debt, falling wages in real terms, a failing capitalist system with no alternative being discussed, rampant misinformation, Christian nationalists, historic inequality creating a feudal billionaire class, a system that bailed out Wall Street in 2008 and 2019 in one year after record profits now wants to crush workers with rising interest rates, rising inflation and frozen wages. We've got an unnecessary and avoidable Cold War with Russia and China brewing into a hot war and we've got left-wing leadership that is unable to inspire and activate a working-class revolt. Your friends who were on the podcast recently were all about the working-class revolt, weren't they? (laughs) Yeah, but they were unable to inspire one because their ideas were crazy. I'm talking of a revolt. I'm talking about a revolt at the voting box, Joe, Right, not in the street. Yeah, Labor seemed to have this idea that they won the last election. And I have to say, I don't know that they did. I think that the Liberals lost the last election. And I saw a big swing towards the Greens. I think the Greens won the last election. They did. Yeah. Yeah. I think people are going, you can't de facto, you're better than the Liberals, but... Given a choice, we wanted a, a, a bit more movement. Yep. Yeah. I think that's right. And it's hard to criticise the Labor government at this stage because they're really just getting their, their feet under the table. Although there will be some criticism coming up, but I've got to have some time to work a few things out, to, time to make a few mistakes. Look, for all those problems, they're all genuinely where we're at. Well, like, this is a difficult time in, in, in our in the life cycle of this particular civilization, I think. I blame Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher and Rupert Murdoch. Probably should have put Rupert Murdoch first, but I blame all three of them. So John Howard? Oh, he's a little bit player in the scheme. He followed what they did. Yeah. Yeah. But I think in terms of the Australian yes. following suit, it was John Howard who put yes. Reaganomics into pra- practice. Yes. Although I'm starting to wonder how much to blame the Hawke and Keating years as well. I'm just, I'm, I have to examine it a bit more closely. See, they struck the accord and they opened up the Australian economy, but there was a lot of industry that was just abandoned that in hindsight, maybe we should have been subsidising and keeping if possible. And so I'm just not entirely sure now how I feel about the Keating Hawke years and, the, and, and I'm just not sure how much selling off of stuff they did then. I have to look at it more closely. Yeah, but yeah, I put Howard in there. The interesting thing to me about Maggie is I actually heard a miner saying to me that Margaret Thatcher invented climate change because she wanted to shut down the mines during the mine workers' strike back in the 80s. Because she's famously pro sort of climate change action. Yeah, she was a chemist. She actually understood the science. And the miner was saying she was doing that to put pressure on the mine. That's interesting. During the mine worker strike back in the yeah. 80s. Yeah. What do you think of that? Do you agree with it? I think it's a conspiracy theory personally, but. Yeah. Could be something in it. That's interesting. Yeah. You wouldn't no, I, I think it. there's. I think there's enough evidence out there to prove that humans are causing climate change by yes. burning fossil fuels. Yep. Whether she latched onto that as a useful thing, that's possible. I don't know. Mm. Mm. Um, I hadn't thought of that. Anyway. I just thought it was interesting to hear it as a conspiracy theory. Yeah. It's one of the better conspiracy theories or better yeah. theories going around there. I don't know that either. It's that kind of – even if she was genuinely in favour of taking action on climate change, she, it, she would have loved the fact that it made things difficult for the miners. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Okay. So I think we're going to kick off talking about inflation and interest rates, and then we're going to talk about some foreign policy issues, China, Ukraine, 
and intersperse it with a bunch of other stuff. But before we do that, just briefly, a couple of episodes ago, I mentioned I really want people to put their hand up to meet with their local member to talk about religious instruction lessons. And particularly in inner city Brisbane electorates where there's a strong non-religious vote revealed by the last census and we'll help you. Nobody's put their hand up yet. So if you're out there and got nothing to do or you have lots to do but you feel the issue's important, reach out and particularly if there's somebody in Anastasia Palaszczuk's electorate, it would be really good to have somebody go there and talk to her and find out where she stands on this issue. It's hard to gauge what her personal view is. Myself and others are starting to work out different um, politicians and where they sit on this issue, but it's hard to read Anastasia Palaszczuk's personal position on this, so it'd be good if somebody can talk to her. And just before we get into it as well, I enjoyed my discussion with Carl Fitzgerald last week. He was talking about land banks and developers drip feeding or drip releasing rezoned property to keep the market price up. Joe, you mentioned uh, a book. Yeah, you haven't read the you haven't seen the episode yet, but you mentioned a book we were talking about. Yeah, Game of Mates, written mm. by a UQ and a University of Sydney professor. And it's about corruption in Australian politics, but a very strong section around land use and local councils and the coziness between developers and council planners, talking about the revolving door of people leaving council, going in to work for a developer and then coming back after five or 10 years and working back in council and and just a level of, without, without overt bribes, just a level of friendliness and the whole game of mates was not about cash in paper bags as yeah has happened in the past, but more just these people being friends and doing favours for mates. Yep. And those favours are at the cost of the average Australian. Yep. So there's a similar story about a revolving door with coal mining industry and operatives working in Canberra. I think it was Michael West report did something on that showing just how these people for a few years would be in industry, for a few years would be a ministerial advisor, back into industry, back as advising, and just there was this group of people in and out of government and the mining industry. So, yeah, I can easily imagine a similar thing at council level with developers. So is, is that an old book, Came of Mates, is it? How old is it? It's got to be five years old now. Okay, yep. Anyway, the story wouldn't have changed. Yeah. No, I think, look, it's as relevant now. And there were some interesting suggestions. The mm. biggest one was a lot of overseas experts, because they're talking about you need time in industry to understand the industry and you need to become an expert. Mm. But what effectively they were saying was council should be hiring from overseas. Mm. So there aren't these vested interests. Yeah. Yep. Yep. All right. Inflation and what's happening with the economy and the responses from different groups. And I'm not sure how much we've mentioned about this in the past, so it may be a little bit of repetition. Not sure, but, you know, what we've got, dear listener, is inflation, is, which has been dormant for years, has suddenly raised its head. And in response, the Reserve Bank has said, got to raise interest rates, got to fix that, and got to deal with this inflation by rising interest rates. And sure enough, they're all starting to rise. And is this the appropriate response? What has caused inflation? What's really going on? Do we just have to accept what these people are telling us or can we work it out for ourselves? In the same way that we became experts on lockdowns and the effect on the economy and we became experts on Ukraine and NATO, well, we're now experts, I am at least, <laughs> on inflation and interest rates. I'll do my best. Did you see the Chaser's comment, Chaser's no. headline? No. It was employees tell CEOs that they can't afford a pay rise this year because of inflation and it's CEO wages causing the inflation. Yes, yes. they should be. That's where we're at. Well, exactly. So let's look at some charts and statistics. If you're watching this on the video, you will see a chart on your screen, which this came from Sally McManus, who's – of the labour movement 
uh, in Australia, and it's a chart showing the Labor's share of Labor as opposed to capital, L-A-B-O-U-R, share of GDP. And you will see that it peaked in about 1975 or so and then has been on a decline since. That's the share of gross domestic product. And more importantly, or as important, is the next slide that will come up, which basically shows profits index and a wages index, assuming they started at the same point in 2002, and a very slow incremental rise for wages and and a real strong rise for profits, particularly since 2016. <laughs> so this is... Wasn't that when Scotty got into power? Yeah, it would have been when... He was with us for a bit over three or four years, maybe a bit before Scotty, wasn't it? Just a little bit before Scotty, perhaps. Es- essentially, what we've got is profits far outstripping wages. So companies and profits have been doing very well overall compared to wages. So that, that's a key sort of I, um, I was quite statistic. shocked. I saw <clears throat> news.com had reposted or had written an article based on an Australian Institute report as opposed to the IPA, yes. which was saying the real cost, sorry, the real effect of inflation, only 5% of inflation was due to labour costs. Yes. I've got it in the list here somewhere, the Australian Institute. I'll get to that one. Okay. Um, I think it's on my list here. But, I was um, just shocked to see it in news.com. Yeah, yeah. Slipped in somehow. So I've got a bunch of commentators talking about different things. First off is Michael Hudson, who is talking about America, which is doing the same thing. Inflation, Fed raising interest rates, and exactly the same scenario happening in the States. And so Michael Hudson says, to Wall Street and its backers, the solution to any price inflation is to reduce wages and public social spending. Rising unemployment will oblige labour to compete for jobs that pay less and less as the economy slows. This class war doctrine is the prime directive of neoliberal economics. Public discussion of today's inflation is framed in a way that avoids blaming the 8.2% rise in consumer prices on the Biden administration's new Cold War sanctions on Russian oil, gas and agriculture or on oil companies and other sectors using these sanctions as an excuse to charge monopoly prices. So, dear listener, a large component of the inflation is the rising cost of energy, both directly where people buy energy to heat their homes or drive their vehicles, but it's used, you know... Freight costs in shipping stuff from China, it's used to create fertiliser. It's, there's so many things where you increase the cost of fuel, it has a, an add-on effect in something that you may not necessarily associate with fuel. And that's a big part of that is the sanctions on Russia and fuel companies charging huge profits as a result because of monopoly situations. Joe? Robert Reich was talking about the fact that all these oil companies in the States have gone, oh, we need to open up federal lands for drilling. And it's not a shortage of oil. And these oil wells that they're talking about prospecting for are going to take five to 10 years to come online, Mm. by which time who knows what the oil price will be. Indeed. But they basically just want an excuse to to open up more oil wells and and peel back previous restrictions. And they're using this as an excuse to do that. Yes, and it's the workers who are going to end up paying the price. They don't turn around to the companies and say, stop this monopoly price gouging. They just say to workers, oh, you have to well, take care. UK did. On companies with their price yeah. gouging. Yeah, with, with a type of resource. With windfall profits. Yeah, tax. windfall profits. Yeah. 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 More of that, please. Mm. So still continuing with Michael Hudson. COVID's shutdown of the US and foreign economies and foreign trade also is not acknowledged as disrupting supply lines and raising shipping costs, and hence import prices. The entire blame for inflation is placed on wage earners, and the response is to make them the victims of the coming austerity, as if their wages are responsible for bidding up oil prices, food prices, and other prices, 
resulting from the crisis. The reality is that they are too debt-strapped to be spendthrifts. The pretense behind the Fed's recent increase is that raising interest rates will cure inflation by deterring borrowing to spend on the basic needs that make up the consumer price index. But banks don't finance much consumption. Banks lend almost entirely to buy real estate, stocks and bonds, not goods and services. Some 80% of bank loans are real estate mortgages and most of the remainder loans are collateralised by stocks and bonds, so raising interest rates will not lead wage earners to borrow less to buy consumer goods. So that's true, and he makes a point here. The Democrat Party, the party's identity politics, address almost every identity except that of wage earners and debtors. He's passing aside there. So that's initial comments on the US situation by... Michael Hudson, saying that a lot of the inflation is just increased fuel costs brought about by sanctions and price gouging. Then we've got Crikey had an article and it said that rising profit levels among the Australian corporate sector has been identified as one of the key causes for increasing inflation levels across the country, a new report has shown. So rising profit levels amongst the corporate sector. Research from the Australia Institute has revealed increasing profit levels amongst companies and not increased wages for workers have been contributing to rising inflation rates. The report found wages made no contribution to inflation in Australia during 2019-2020 or in the following year, 2021. The most recent financial year saw wages only make up 0.6 percentage points of the 4.1%. Richard Dennis from the Australian Institute said, despite concerns from employers and business groups, increased wages would contribute to rising costs. The data showed that the increasing profits were a major factor for inflation. It's profits, not rising costs, that are driving Australia's inflation, he said. It's a shortage of competition, not a shortage of skilled labour. It's driving up the cost of... Interestingly, I <clears throat> read, I think it was a, a crikey article about gas prices, and they were saying that the Queensland government, because of its hands-off approach, where they refused to build a state-owned infrastructure for the LNG pipeline, basically there were th- three consortiums that ended up each building their own, and because of that, they were overextended and therefore couldn't afford to sell their gas onshore because they had to pay for this infrastructure that they all independently built Mm. rather than sharing the infrastructure. And so that's added costs on, which has basically made gas more expensive. Uh, Okay. Yeah, even if they wanted to, they wouldn't sell it locally at a cheap price. Yeah. Mm. Basically, they were saying that the state should have built the infrastructure Mm. with a a regulation, yeah with a stipulation mm. that they could divert gas as needed to yeah. the local market. Because I think Russia is showing that if you can control pipelines, it comes in quite handy. Yes. <laughs> you can put a lot of pressure on Yeah. Keep control of it. Here's a broad worldview by Yanis Varoufakis. So as you're listening, I've got a bit of a man crush on Yanis. I think he's great. Okay. Yanis says, so what is really going on? A half-century-long power play led by corporations, Wall Street, governments and central banks has gone badly wrong. As a result, the West authorities now face an impossible choice. Push conglomerates and even states into bankruptcies or allow inflation to go unchecked. For 50 years, the US economy has sustained the net exports of Europe, Japan, South Korea, then China and other emerging economies. So basically for 50 years, all this stuff's been going into the US economy. While a lion's share of those foreigners' profits rushed to Wall Street in search of higher returns. On the back of this tsunami of capital heading for America, the financiers were building pyramids of private money, such as options and derivatives, to fund the corporations building up a global labyrinth of ports, ships, warehouses, etc., When the crash of 2008 burned down these pyramids, the whole financialised labyrinth of global just-in-time supply change was imperiled. To save not just the bankers, but also the labyrinth itself, central bankers stepped in 
to replace the financiers' pyramids with public money. You might remember quantitative easing. Meanwhile, governments were cutting public expenditure, jobs and services. So we had socialism for capital and harsh austerity for labour. Not just quantitative easing, there was bailouts. Yes. Money just appeared. Literally, just appeared. Wages shrunk and prices and profits are stagnant, but the price of assets purchased by the rich skyrocketed. It was a new power game. The traditional struggle between capital and labour to increase their respective shares of total income through markups and wage increases continued, but was no longer the source of most of new wealth. After 2008, wealth triumphed in equity and real estate markets, which had decoupled from the real economy. Then came the pandemic, which changed one big thing. Western governments were forced to channel some of the new rivers of central central bank money to lockdown masses. And uh, as the lockdown multitudes spent some of their furlough money on scarce imports, prices began to rise and corporations with great paper wealth responded by exploiting their immense market power uh, to push prices higher through the roof and... After two decades of central bank-supported bonanza of soaring asset prices and rising corporate debt, a little price inflation was all it took to end the power game that shaped the post-2008 world in the image of a revived ruling class. So what happens now? Probably nothing good. To stabilise the economy, the authorities first need to end the exorbitant power bestowed upon the very few by a political process of paper wealth and cheap debt creation. <coughs> what Giannis is getting at there is that money flooded into the system. That money was used to, it was so cheap that the top end of town could borrow cheaply, buy stuff, and that, and, and that cheap money caused a bubble of, in, of inflated property and equity prices. Because what are you going to do? Interest rates are at zero. You can borrow stuff at 1%. You may as well be buying equities and property. And that pushed up the price. And that's where we're at now. So that's one of the aspects of where we got to here. Right. Then I've got something from the Saturday paper. And let's see. What does it say here? I'll try and shorten it a little bit. So... Profits are now the highest ever share of Australia's GDP, while wage shares are at historic lows. A recent analysis of Australia's national accounts by Greg Jericho from the Australia Institute found company profits increased by 25.3% over the past year. Over the past two years, profit margins increased by 40.3% while wages increase by just 7.4%. So there you have it, dear listener. In Australia, in the past two years, look, forget about your mum and dad businesses selling coffee and cakes. Think of big corporations. Profit margins increased by 40.3%, while wages increased by just 7.4%. And now, with some inflation lurking around, it's... Wage earners who are told, oh, you could freeze. Yeah, I think of <clears throat> some corporations that did very well under lockdown, mm. particularly those in retail, online retail, and I can't see that they're bearing any of the blame for this inflation, and yet it is mm. them that... Mm. Mm. And we don't get enough of this commentary in mainstream media, so... As it says in this article, yet the notion that wage growth is the major driver of inflation continues to persist in the public consciousness. There was journalist Philip Curry's infamous claim that pegging wages to inflation would be a one-way ticket to the Weimar Republic. Likewise, Andrew McKellar, Chief Executive of the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, said small business cannot afford a minimum wage rise of more than 5%. And such increases would cruel jobs, not create them. <coughs> Meanwhile, broadcaster Walid Ali described wag stagnation as the bitter medicine that might keep inflation in check. So as he's just reading stuff, the commentariat is just talking about, oh, it's got to be wages. A bit of inflation sniffing around, crackdown on wages, couldn't possibly allow wages to keep up with inflation. 
And, uh, and really, Australians have to say, no, that's not how it should work. You just have to keep up in real terms, at least, with inflation. And that's what the, the railway strike in the UK was all about with that, those clips I played a few weeks ago where they were saying, they're just keeping pace with inflation and they're fighting for it. What else have I got here? So, yeah, it just says here, fact check on aisle two, wages do not increase inflation unless they increase faster than inflation and productivity combined. And in reality, wages have been flat or declining in real terms for more than a decade. Business commentators and corporate economists peddle the same tired orthodoxy, blaming wages for higher inflation and even evoking fantasies of wage price spirals. I'm fairly sure that, in fact, I know that, at the end of slavery in the US, the slave owners complained that it would force businesses out of out of business because yes. they couldn't afford to run their cotton farms without slaves. Yes. I think they still did okay afterwards somehow. They got huge amounts of reparation. At the end of the day, if your business is run by stealing from your employees, should it be running? Yes. And the thing is, if you are selling coffees and cakes and you're thinking, oh, I've got these staff and I can't afford to pay them an extra dollar an hour or whatever it was, you've got to think of who are your clientele? If they have an extra money in their pocket, they're able to mm -hmm. buy the coffee. So you have to think of your clientele as well as your, as your employees and costs. And it doesn't matter if inflation goes up 5 or 10%. If, if you can maintain your sales, if people have that money to spend. This article goes on to say that part of our problem in Australia as well is that we've got a lot of monopolies and oligopolies. We've got a lot of industry in Australia where there's only a two, three or four players in the game and they can easily control. basically control the pricing. And really, we're talking about inflation. We've talked about profits increasing well above the rest of the, of the economy one of the answers is we well, should be doing stuff to break up monopolies and increasing competition to drive down those profit margins. That's an anti-inflationary step that the government can take. It was interesting to talking to friends in the UK who are in the supermarket business and they were talking about the percentage of market share that each supermarket has and the biggest supermarket in the UK has less than 30-something, less than 35% anyway, market share. Right. Yep. So there are so many different supermarkets that there is sufficient competition. Yes. Whereas over here, there's the Coles and Woolies and Aldi is a very small part of the market and IGA yeah. is minuscule. Yeah. And there's a, just a number of industries like that. Mm -hmm. uh, alcohol, for example, it, it's an incredibly small number of players in the market selling beer. At the end of the day, be surprised how small the market is. Yep. Okay. And there was a, this article goes on to quote uh, Sims, who was formerly with the uh, ACCC, and he's calling for more work to be done in terms of dealing with monopolies. And there's another article here, which will be in the show notes for people who are patrons, talking about the Reserve Bank. So part of what's happening here, dear listener, is it's the Reserve Bank that is raising the cash rate in order that this increase will be passed on by the banks in its lending. And I've had a bit of an argument with, off the record I think it was, with Paul, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, about the RBA because I was saying this is such an important function of our economy. Why are we outsourcing it to the Reserve Bank? Like the politicians should be in charge of this. I don't know that it actually makes sense to, to have an outside sort of force involved. But there's a really interesting article that talks about the people who are on the Reserve Bank board really are not qualified in terms of monetary policy. They're just people who have been in business and if Labor's in charge, then there might be some union people on there. But they're not people with actual experience and qualifications as economists in monetary policy. And, in fact, the more you know about this stuff, the probably the least likely you are to actually get on the Reserve Bank boards. The Treasurer, trying to think of his name on Labor's side, he's announced there's going to be some inquiry into the Reserve Bank and how it operates. And I think that's a good idea because 
at the moment it's just run by guys who have run businesses or guys who have run unions and people with real expertise in monetary matters, they're not on the Reserve Bank board. And it's, it seems to me a very crazy situation that we've outsourced it to a group of people who don't necessarily hold any qualifications. Yeah, I understand outsourcing it, but surely mm. you outsource it to the experts rather than mm. leave it in the hands of the politicians. Ultimately, like our defence, we say to defence experts, draft up a white paper, tell us what you think we should do. But at the end of the day, we'll then make the decision and live or die by it. At least, I just, yeah, I just still think it should be a role of government rather than, I think they could make a recommendation, but then the government should be responsible for it, so... Anyway, while I have a drink and refresh my throat, we've got a lot of that was to do with capitalism as part of the problem here. I've been digging up some of uh, Landon Hardbottom's old stuff and I thought I should be replaying a bit more of it. So let's intersperse this with a little bit of a Landon Hardbottom. What's that, my love? What am I doing? Well, I'm going to write some love poetry. Well, of course I'll let you read it when I'm finished. <clears throat> oh, capitalism, some say you are a prison, but to them I do not listen. Some say you have put millions in the ground, but to that I say, hmm, they were mostly brown. In you there is no gloom, as people consume and the economy booms, profits are maximised, and to no one's surprise, those of us on top get to keep the lot. Well, Landon, there's one for the... <laughs> ah, thank you, Landon. First part of that, Landon, was your little ahem as you started off. That was a good comic timing. I like that, Landon. That's a little bit about interest rates and inflation and how we're being hoodwinked, but it's just going to happen anyway, isn't it? Talk about We're talking about big picture on this episode. I've promised I would depress you <laughs> and whinge and rant and complain. So let's talk about foreign affairs, foreign policy, what's going on in the world in terms of conflict, what's America doing, China, Ukraine, Australia-Chinese affairs, Let's try and summarise where we're at at the moment. And, Joe, the bits I'm reading in the media is in terms of our relationship with America, Labor seems to be still all the way with LBJ. Yes. It just continues. The comments and things that you seem to see are, of course, we are just going to be the lapdogs of... America into the foreseeable future and they just don't want to cut loose, unhitch the wagon. We are just tied to them. There's lots of countries in the Asia-Pacific region who just have an independent policy, who keep themselves separate and we just have convinced ourselves that America is going to save us from the evil Chinese. There is the whole Anglo thing, isn't there? English-speaking friends will support English-speaking yeah. friends against those and It's Asian... like the five eyes. Yeah. There, there, there seems to be very much a we trust English-speaking countries more than we trust those bloody foreigners. Yes. Uh, and, yeah, because we have a shared heritage of British colonialism. Yes. At some point, please, Labour, grow up and recognise as Keating. Like, you all genuflect at the altar of Paul Keating. He's been telling Australians for the last 30 years, we've got to be an independent, strong... An independent voice is actually where we'll get security, not from being this lapdog of America. It's just going to get us into trouble. But the comments that are coming out have us still hitched to the wagon. And I've got such an issue with this because... A, the Americans are such pricks. And, oh, they've got to protect us from the evil Chinese. 
I was talking to my sister-in-law just before the podcast and a little bit on this and just talking about, oh, what if they invade, invade Taiwan or whatever. I was like, if China invaded Taiwan, full-on invasion, it still wouldn't add up to what America's been doing around the world in the last 70 years. Like, they're just doing what normal superpowers do and you can't look at the Americans' actions over the last 70 years and, and applaud it in any way. Like, they've been interfering and throwing, overthrowing governments left and centre for since their inception. It's not just the last 70 years. It's since their inception. That is what they are about, the American empire. And to just be continually saying, oh, we need America to save us from imperialism from these other groups. <laughs> what do you think these guys have been doing all this time? So that's part of it. And the other part is they are in the decline. They are not going to be the hegemonic force into the future that they have been. And so start thinking about how the power play will work out over the next 20 or 30 years. The American empire is in the decline and its only strength is military at this stage. Actually, I'll go into their strengths. I was going to say their theocracy is a yes. great strong point. Indeed, in terms of exporting Christianity is one of their greatest mm. exports. Yeah, it's a particular branch of it, yeah. So, look, I don't know if I've ever said this before. I've had it in my notes. Maybe I have, but America won the Cold War relying on three power bases, financial, military, and propaganda power. It does say so, the Chinese are going to be there, though. It says now there are chinks appearing in these three power bases. <laughs> Did I say that? Yeah. Now they're, yeah. Financial, military and propaganda power. So let's look at those powers. So militarily, it bullied smaller states. Obvious invasions include Vietnam, Korea, Iraq, Afghanistan. But less obvious are the hundreds of interventions where the US supplied covert or overt military assistance to governments or rebels that it favoured. And it used propaganda power to convince the world that these were necessary actions to promote freedom and democracy, and they're really about promoting the interests of the USA. Financially, the USA bullied everyone. So through US dollar hegemony and cheap money for US companies, it enabled US multinationals to buy industrial companies in developed countries. And through the IMF and the World Bank, it forced smaller countries to sell their commons on the cheap to US companies. And if they didn't agree, it resorted back to its military power to engineer regime change and installed friendly, US-friendly regimes. And then it used more propaganda power to convince the rest of the world that its actions were legitimate. And it propagandised everybody. So through cultural hegemony in the English-speaking world, it has controlled the flow of information through mainstream Western media. Powerful American multinational companies benefit from aggressive US foreign policy and the mainstream media could not afford to criticise the program, even if it wanted to, for fear of losing advertising revenue. The public has been propagandised to believe that the USA is the home of the brave and the land of the free and will not accept fair criticism of US actions. So you're right, Joe, I did say. Now there are three chink now there are chinks appearing <laughs> in these three thousand faces. <laughs> so militarily. Ukraine invasion shows that there's a limit to USA military power. Russia has nuclear weapons and the USA can't respond as it would like. China has built enough military capacity that it could defend itself from a US invasion. North Korea remains off limits while it has nukes. These countries have tightly controlled their societies so it's difficult for the USA to engineer coup attempts. So that's a chink in the military power. Financially, the US dollar is losing its hegemony. So China, Russia, Iran, India, Venezuela and other countries are looking to replace the US dollar with a combination of their own currencies and gold and the theft of central bank assets, thinking Afghanistan, Venezuela and Russia, will accelerate the need to ditch US bonds. So the USA does not produce anything of importance to Russia and China. They don't need to import US goods. They can survive without them. They can cut themselves from the USA without too much pain. Russia used to buy grain from the US. 
I don't know if that's still yeah. a thing. With what happened when they imposed restrictions on Russia, actually, I think it was Putin who you know, it was an advantage for them. They, a lot of industries have actually been revitalised because they weren't able to import stuff. So they started making their own cheese and all sorts of things. They can get away with. They don't need. They don't need America. They can survive without them. Oh, it's my probably, friend in Russia was saying that he can still get his Guinness, mm. although it sounds like he's now drinking the Russian equivalent of Guinness. And I'm sure whatever they really need, they can get via China, if it's something in particular. So, unfortunately, the propaganda power is as strong as ever. So, America's prosperity has come from bullying brown people and white people don't care. However, US demands that Europe stop buying Russian energy will cause grief and resentment in Europe. They will object to being cold and hungry. They will try to understand what is happening. And despite the propaganda, their faith in America may be dented. So the benefits of US hegemony has flowed to a small elite within America. There are signs that US employees are finally revolting. The Amazon union case is an example. Hunger and pain may cause some Americans to look beyond the propaganda and see the corruption in their society, but Americans have been brainwashed for so long I don't think they're capable of pulling themselves out of the mire. The Chinese state has restricted US propaganda in China. The average Chinese is supportive of the Chinese government and is suspicious of US foreign policy. And the Ukraine situation simply reinforces that China needs to be independent wherever possible. So the whole American-style capitalism needs growth. And since its inception, has relied on conquest and acquisition. They, they basically had to conquer the West. Then they were basically conquering and acquiring, if not, if not in the case of installing governments and having their own companies in Latin America, United Fruit and all the rest of it. They've basically run out of countries to exploit at this point. And Trump exposed internal dysfunction. Ukraine is exposing the limits of military power and Putin is now exposing the loss of financial power. So what does this all mean for Australia? Those guys are going downhill. The empire is in decline. And if we think hitching our wagon to them is the answer, we're just kidding ourselves. And I'm really worried that Labor seems committed to this all the way with LBJ. Oh, if somebody sees something in the media where Labor starts to make noises about being more independent of the USA, please show it to me. I can't wait to see it, but I'm not going to hold my breath. They did mend fences with the French. Yes, that's true. Yep. Surely the French should be whispering. Surely Macron should have whispered into Albanese's ear and said, what are you doing? Can't rely on those guys. Um, because Macron he's... loves Macron's probably. I don't know what sort of Frenchman he is. is he... He's not a what's it? Who's the? He, he's not a Gaullist. Okay. Who believe in an independent France? No. Which is why, yeah, that that was why they got out of NATO was they didn't trust NATO to protect them. They got back in ten years ago now. Okay. Yep. But I certainly yeah. remember, yeah, as a child with the Cold War still in full flight, that France was not part of NATO. France was independent. Yeah, probably Macron is US friendly, probably. I would have thought so. Know. I saw this tweet which said, the, the, this final season of America has been absolutely amazing. It starts with an attack on the Capitol and ends with a new Supreme Court that is actively dismantling democracy. That's some top-notch writing. And it perfectly sets up the Civil War miniseries that will follow. I think Catwood wrote this, didn't she? The, yes. It's heading that way, isn't it? Who's that? There's a politician there, MTG, Marjorie Taylor Green. Green, yes. She openly came out on this thing saying, I believe... Total Fruit Loop? I believe we should openly aim to... We, are, we should be a Christian nationalist country and it's just openly saying just some crazy shit. And she was challenged in her primary but got, like, record support and survived. And so she's just a complete nutter that is going to be fine for another term. Didn't follow up to find out whether that mayoral candidate won, the Jesus Guns Babies candidate. 
I don't know. Just you remember the sign? Though. What did the sign say? It was on the side of the coach she was driving around, and it was literally Jesus Guns Babies. Right. Not necessarily one, in that order. There's one politician who said, I would kill my ba- I would kill my grandchildren in order to ensure that this legislation got through, this anti-abortion legislation. It said some crazy statement about literally willing to kill her grandchildren to make sure this, if it meant that this legislation would get through. Ah. Oh. Elected politicians. Yeah, where are we up to? It is getting depressing, isn't it? I'm mindful of that. So we're 55 minutes in. Yeah. Maybe I should end. Maybe I should end this one. Yeah. Dear listener, because of technical issues, we're going to keep this one under an hour and, and next week you'll hear from Joe and I. We'll really be talking about the second part of our conversation, which we recorded on the... 25th of July, yeah, continuing our rant. All right, we'll finish this one here. Talk to you next week. Bye. Good night from him. Now a matter of great importance has been brought to my attention. I speak, of course, of the generous contributions made by the patrons of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. These fine men and women have sacrificed so much for their countrymen. Never before in the field of human conflict have so many owed so much to so few. To those of you who are not yet patrons, I say this. Give generously of yourself. Give until you can honestly say, I have nothing left to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Let me see. What is the time? Ah. 10 a.m. Now, where's my whiskey and cigars? (laughs) Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast so there's different levels ranging from a dollar fifty australian to i think ten dollars and various ones in between it's really what do you think it's worth is it worth a cup of coffee uh is it worth more than that less than that whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same maybe you don't listen to the whole thing maybe you never talk about it with people maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there it just it'll be different for everybody so if you get a lot out of the podcast contribute a bit more if you don't get much contribute less but in any event you can subscribe there if you don't like the idea of a regular subscription the website has a link to a paypal donation so you could just do a one-off donation every now and again so there you go It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.